Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. The Old Testament book of Isaiah and Isaiah and chapter number 2. Isaiah and chapter number 2. We're continuing with our series of the Millennial Kingdom and we've reached to the very end. We've hit some of the nuts and bolts speaking about the people of the Millennial Kingdom, the prisoner of the Millennial Kingdom. We took some time to talk about the conditions of the world. What is it going to be like? We talked about the government, who's going to be in charge, who's working with them, what are the jobs, how do we get those jobs? And now we get to the very tail end of this section of the nuts and bolts. And then from this point forward, starting tonight, we're going to talk about what happens at the end of the millennial kingdom and beyond. But this is the last section, the last message dealing with the nuts and the bolts. And we turn to the book of Isaiah chapter number two. Isaiah chapter number two. And notice with me, if you don't mind, Isaiah chapter two, starting at verse number one. Isaiah chapter two and verse number one. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it came to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. And it shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion goeth forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and nations shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of Isaiah chapter number 2. Isaiah chapter number 2 and verse number 3 the phrase the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And if you subtitle things, we're going to be covering in this specific idea here, the capital of the millennial kingdom. The capital of the millennial kingdom. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come to you today, we're just asking that you would order our thoughts, order our way, order our passage, that you could get the glory and honor from this, that we could see that you are a God who knows what he's doing and what you are doing, and that we could draw a proper application because of all that you're doing here. Lord, fill me with your spirit that you can guide and direct this message the way that it ought to go. That you would be with my mind, my hearts, my, and my everything, my tongue, my words. That you could be a blessing to your people the way that you see fit. And we can trust you in these things. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now there are many, many, many passages that deal with Jerusalem being the capital of the millennial kingdom. We're not going to turn to all of them, but we will turn to some of them just to show how much emphasis God has placed on the city of Jerusalem in our future. This passage here is a good opening um, passage. Notice if you don't mind, we'll walk through this really quick. But it says, the word of the Lord that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Verse number two, and it shall come to pass in the last days. So here we have our time frame. It's going to be in the last days. This is a term that's often used for the idea of the millennial kingdom. So in the millennial kingdom, in the last days, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall 
shall be exalted above the hills and all the nations shall flow from it. Now we've already covered this before in the book of Zechariah chapter 14 that when Jesus Christ comes back on the Mount of Olives he's coming back to the very same place where he ascended up that when he comes back because he is God he's going to come back with so much power that it's actually going to rearrange the real estate of that area. And that where Jerusalem is going to be seated is going to rise up even higher than it is now. And it's going to expand that land mass so Jerusalem will fit according to the dimensions God has placed for it. We'll cover that in a different message later on. But Jerusalem is going to be huge and it's going to be lifted up. And the topography, the geography that it currently sits is going to be changed and put into a different manner. Verse number three, and many people shall go and say, come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he, this God will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord shall, um, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Here in verse 3 it says people will be coming to Jerusalem from all over the world for the purpose of receiving the instructions to learning what God would have them to do. That the who comes before the what. They'll come before God and seek what God would have for them. And when they find out what God has for them they'll go down off of the mountain to go fulfill what God has for them. Now the name of Jerusalem used in this passage is Zion. The word Zion deals with the very very specific promises that God has made to his people and to this city. The word Zion is a poetical term that carries the idea of the city of Jerusalem that is set aside for God's purpose, God's use, the city that has been made holy. So when you see the word Zion, it is a poetical term for Jerusalem. And God is going to rule from the temple. We had talked about that last Sunday night. That God is going to rule from the temple. This is going to be the seat of his government. People are going to go to Jerusalem, to the temple, find out what God wants from them, and then they're going to go carry out those orders. Verse 4. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now from this perfect government of Jesus, headquarters in Jerusalem, because Jesus is ruling, and remember that Jesus is not ruling over a small country, he's not ruling over a little territory, he's not ruling even over a continent, he's going to be the governor, the Jesus is going to be the king of the entire world. And now that Jesus has unified all of the world to following after him, there's going to be no need of war anymore. That all the machines used for war are going to be turned into peacekeeping uh, materials. Things that you would use in peace. For example, agriculture, fishing, doing work. That because of the perfect peace of this government, we're going to enjoy peace around the world. Now, as we go through here, let me hit a couple things about Jerusalem. First thing, Jerusalem will be the center of kingdom rule. That Jerusalem will be the center of kingdom rule. Now, even now, per currently present tense, geographically on the map, Jerusalem is already geographically the center of the world. If you've never noticed that before, they measure out maps where it's set out. Jerusalem is the dead center of the world. It's an interesting tidbit that the way that the land masses are sorted out, that Jerusalem is the center. God knew what he was doing when he picked that city in the first place. Now in the millennial kingdom, Jerusalem is going to be the center of all life. For example, today in America, we have the center of America in Washington, D.C., that when you need directions, when something happens, we're waiting for news from Washington, we're waiting to hear from the White House, we would know that what they're speaking about, that we're getting our directions, that's the seat of government, that's going to be the center of our response of what people are saying. Well, in the Millennial Kingdom days, it's going to be Jerusalem. It's going to be the temple. That we're waiting to hear word from Jerusalem about what we're going to do about handling this. 
that Jerusalem is going to be the center of the government. It's going to be the center of the world. It's going to be the center of the social world. That meaning it's going to be the city that everyone talks about. So instead of people saying, well, the Big Apple, well, Paris, well, London, everyone's going to talk about Jerusalem. That Jerusalem is going to be the center of the government of the world in all aspects. It's what everyone is going to be following. Notice if you don't mind to the minor prophet book of Micah. And let's see some more information on this. The book of Micah found in the minor prophet section. So if you're in Isaiah, you'll get to the rest of the major prophets. And then you'll turn to the minor prophets. If you're looking for Micah, it's right next to Jonah. If that helps you out. Micah chapter number four. Micah chapter 4, and notice with me in verse number 1. Micah chapter 4 in verse number 1. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established on the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted upon the hills, and the people shall flow to it. Pause. Sounds familiar already. It's almost exactly what was said in Isaiah chapter 2. Notice with me verse 2. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways. And we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Once again, Jerusalem will be the capital and the king will teach and make the laws and his word will come from Jerusalem. Verse 3, and he, that's Jesus, shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now once again, just repeating what Isaiah chapter 2 said, that this will be a place of peace around the world because of the ruler and the government he has. But notice now it starts giving us a little bit more information. Verse 4, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts shall spoke, have spoken it. For all the people will walk every one in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Here we see that everyone will worship God and walk in the name of the Lord. That we're going to have a peace because everyone's going to be following the same God. And by the way, they're following the same God willingly, not because of force. That they're choosing to follow after God. And because we all have the same God and getting the same directions, there's going to be a peace. We know that religion, not a relationship with Jesus, religion has caused a lot of friction throughout the world, throughout the ages. But when people are looking at the same God willingly, that friction goes away. Notice as it goes on in verse number six. In that day, saith the Lord, I will assemble her that halteth, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that has been afflicted. We're going to find that in this kingdom, Jesus will accept everyone. Doesn't matter how broken they are, it doesn't matter who they are, that he will take even the damaged and the rejected. Jesus will accept them all. Notice in verse seven. And I will make her that halteth a remnant and her that was cast afar off a strong nation and the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth forever. Verse 7, it speaks about that the king will take the rejected and he will make something special from them. What a wonderful God that he could take the broken, the rejected, the ones that don't feel like they could do anything and he can make something from them. He can have them blossom. Notice as it goes on in verse 8. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come. Even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Now once again, verse 8, all it's doing is reaffirming that this is the fulfillment of the promises given to the Hebrew people. And that in the millennial kingdom, all of this is done in answer to those promises. Notice as it goes on, we find something else here, that Jerusalem will bring honor to God. Jerusalem will bring honor to God. Turn with me to Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62. Now again, as I said, there are many passages that speak about Jerusalem 
as the capital in the millennial kingdom. We're not turning to all of them, but we're turning to good-sized passages that give a good information about Jerusalem. And we find here in Isaiah 62 that Jerusalem will bring honor to God. Jerusalem will bring honor to God. Notice with me in verse number 1. Isaiah 62 and verse 1. For Zion's sake, remember Zion is a very special poetical term for Jerusalem. Isaiah 62 verse 1. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace. For Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until the righteous thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. Now this is poetical language that's describing how Jerusalem will be the place where God has brought honor by the salvation he offers. Because of the salvation he offers, that people are going to shine bright. Because of the salvation he offers, people are going to enjoy their life. This is a poetical term speaking about them that have received this gift of salvation that God promised to the world. Verse 2, and the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness and all the kings thy glory and thou shall be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Here even the Gentiles will look at Jerusalem and acknowledge God's glory there. Now we know that for us this is not a big deal because we're all Gentiles. But in the time that this is written to the Hebrew mind, they th- believe, rightfully so, that God made promises to the Hebrew people. And God is going to bring to pass in this kingdom. They don't know exactly how it's going to work. We have more information, but they know that the Messiah was going to bring a kingdom. And this kingdom, Jerusalem, is going to be the capital of the world. And in this kingdom, God is going to do some great things. But to the Jewish mind, this is another added thing that even the Gentiles will come and acknowledge God. To them, this is a mind-blow thing. To them, they had been taught that the Gentiles were nothing more than dogs. So think about this, that God is going to even accept the dogs into his kingdom. Aren't you glad that he did? And that we could have salvation too? That God had offered salvation to everyone, not just to a specific group of people. Notice as he goes on, verse 3. And thou shalt be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. Here, what it's talking about is that Jerusalem, thou shalt be a crown of glory. That God is going to develop Jerusalem so it will be the crown that God wears. That it will be his crowning achievement, this city. Now, if you go to Jerusalem now, if you've ever had a privilege to go in the Holy Land or saw pictures, it's not much to look at even now. Yep. Not that big of a deal. But in the millennial kingdom, what God does to it, people are going to go, wow. You're going to look forward to it. If you don't live there, maybe you're still in Wisconsin back then. You're going to go take a tour of Jerusalem. You look forward to it. Oh man, I can't wait to go there. This is an amazing city. And people are going to talk about and they look forward to going and seeing it. It's going to be a crown. Look at what God did. Notice with me in verse 4. And thou shalt no more be termed forsaken. Neither shall thy land be any more termed desolate. But thou shalt be called Hephzibah. And thy land Beulah. For the Lord delighteth in thee. And thy land shall be married. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, and so thy sons marry thee, as a bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. Now again, it's talking about Jerusalem, and it's talking about this is a city that God's going to delight in. And it gives a picture. Okay, so for those of you who picture a wedding day, imagine this. All right, so the groom is there. The minister is there. The wedding party is there. The chords begin to play. Here comes the bride. Here she comes down here. And as she's coming down, he goes, oh, that's nice. Is that what the groom is supposed to say? Oh, okay, cool. Is he surveying the crowd to see if there's something else more interesting to look at? When the bride is coming down, all the groom is looking at is that. He is looking at her. He's delighting. Oh, it's my bride. In just a moment, we're going to make that official. I can't wait. Oh, right now, she's the only one that matters. In that time, 
She's the one that's caught the groom's eye. This is a poetical term in this verses here that God is going to delight in Jerusalem. It's not going to be, well, you know, it was kind of nice. I liked it. This is going to be everything. Just like a groom looking at the bride walking down the aisle. That's my bride. Oh, she's so beautiful to me. Oh, I love her so much. This is wonderful. This is great. Notice as it goes on some more. Verse number six. I have set watchmen among thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall not never hold their peace day nor night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence. And I give, rest, give him no rest uh, till he establish, till he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Verses 6 and 7 speak about that God's not going to rest until the people look at Jerusalem and say, wow, look at what God did. Again, it's talking about the effort and the emphasis that God is placing in the city of Jerusalem. That it's going to be special like a bride walking down. And that he's going to work hard so everyone recognizes, wow, that's wonderful. That's great. That's amazing. That everyone's looking at the bride coming down and saying, wow, he did well. He married up. He did good. You know, that's what, that's what you hope people say to the groom when he's coming down. You don't want him to say, well, you married down. You want to say, good job. You did well. Everyone's looking. Notice as it goes on. Verse number eight. And the Lord swore by his right hand, by the arm of his strength, surely I will no more give thy corn to be meat for thine enemies, and the sons of the stranger shall not drink thy wine for which they have labored, but they shall gather it and they shall eat it. Praise the Lord, and they have brought it together to drink in the courts of my holiness. Here it's speaking about that the unsaved heathen people will not take away from the land and from what rightly belongs to Jerusalem. Now think about today. Today, Jerusalem is always getting taken care of. Think about even today, since it's become its own country again, how many times the borders have been withdrawn and how even today they want to take more land from it and give it to someone else. Well, in that day, in the millennial kingdom, nobody's going to take away land that belongs to Jerusalem. No one's going to take away the land that belongs to the Hebrew people. The the heathen are not going to be able to take claim to it at all. They're not going to nitpick. They're not going to come up with new resolutions to take away the land. It will be secured. Notice as it goes on in verse number 10. Go though, go though, Go thou gates, prepare the way of the people, cast up, cast up the highway, gather out the stones, lift up the standard for the people. Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed the end of the world. Say ye to the daughter of Zion, behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call him them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. Thou shall not be called sought out a city not forsaken. Here it's talking about in the future Jerusalem is going to be exalted. We know today Jerusalem is treated very poorly, very horribly. But in the future it's going to be exalted. It's going to be honored. It's going to be praised and people are going to speak about Jerusalem fondly. Now as we go on there are still a lot of passages that deal with Jerusalem being the capital, being the center, being exalted. But if you don't mind, let's just look at one more main passage that Jerusalem will also be protected by God. Jerusalem will be protected by God. Turn with me to Isaiah 26. And this is where we're going to park for the rest of the time. Isaiah 26 And we see that Jerusalem will be protected by God. That that Jerusalem is going to be the center of the world. That Jerusalem is going to be exalted and be used to praise God. But Jerusalem is also going to be used, is going to be protected by God. Notice with me Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26 and notice with me in verse number 1. 
Isaiah 26 and verse 1. In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Notice if you don't mind in this passage it explains how God is going to protect Jerusalem in this time or in that time But we also learn that the same way that God is going to protect Jerusalem in that future time is also how God will protect us as his people today. What is the first way that God protects us? The first way is salvation. Notice with me in verse 1. And in that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and for bullocks. Now we know that God will, can protect Jerusalem, excuse me, in that day, in the future day, God is going to protect Jerusalem without the use of walls or physical defenses. Now, in today's world, walls are not that big of a deal. Uh, you didn't have to cross any walls to get into the lovely metropolitan city of Seymour. <laughs> you will not have to go across a fenced wall in order to get to Green Bay later on. We don't live in a time of walls. But back then, walls were very critical. In the ancient world, walls had to be set around a city for protection for animals. You would have lions that could come up in the middle of the night and they were killers. You would have bandits that would come in to try to steal. And you had opposing armies that could come in to try to destroy the city. And walls would be built to protect the city from those harms. Well, God says that in the future, he's not going to need cities, that they're going to be protected with salvation. And that we today, we're protected without walls. We're protected with salvation. What does that mean? I mean, it sounds good, poetical. What does that mean? Well, we understand that every single one of us are sinners and then we come short of the glory of God. The Bible mentions in the Old Testament, there are 613 laws. And in each of these laws, they explain what God requires his people to do. In those laws, 613, we have 10, we often call the 10 commandments. They are God's standard for holiness. And in God's standard for holiness, they have certain laws as like to honor thy father and thy mother. We would summarize it and say, obey your folks. Well, how many of you ever disobeyed your folks before? Raise your hand. We all have. The Bible says that thou shall not (laughs) bear false witness or don't tell lies. How many of you ever told a lie before? Raise your hand. Good. If you didn't raise your hand, you're a liar. (laughs) You know, the Bible also says that we're supposed to honor the Sabbath. Now you say, why bring that one up? Because it's part of the Ten Commandments. But this law was for those people at that time. There were God's holiness of standards. Do you know according to the Levitical law, the 613 laws, what the penalty was for disobeying any of the Ten Commandments? Death. You said death? Yeah. If you read the book of Exodus right after they gave the law, you have the guy who decided to pick up sticks on the Sabbath day. And the punishment for that was death. You said that was pretty extreme. Yes, because God was trying to get across that for the wages of sin is death. Now, it's always interesting those people who want to go back to the law and say, we should live according to the law. We should keep the Sabbath. Do they want to put the death penalty with it? Does that still apply? I mean, just pick some, not the other. That's neither here nor there. But the penalty of sin is death. In the Old Testament, it was death. In the New Testament, It is death. You say death. Yes. The word death carries the idea of separation. When we physically die, our bodies are there, but what makes us us is separated out. In spiritual death, because of our sin, we deserve to be separated from a holy, righteous God. We deserve spiritual death to be separated from God. When we die, there's only two places to go. A wonderful place called heaven and an awful place called hell. God never intended a single person to go to that awful place called hell, but people go there by default because we deserve to be separated from God. That is the second death. We deserve to be separated from God. The good news is, is that God finished off that verse in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but 
the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That we deserve to die, but Jesus came down from the glories of heaven, robed himself in flesh, lived the same life that you and I lived, with the same temptations, the same troubles, the same heartbreaks. Then he died to pay the price that you and I owed him. And what's more is he did it for free. On the third day, Jesus rose again. When he rose again, it proved that he was God and it proved that God was satisfied with the payment that was made. Now, all I have to do is receive that gift. When I receive that gift of Jesus paying that price for me, I have what is called salvation. The word salvation carries with it the idea of being delivered from something. And the Old Testament, sometimes you'll see the word salvation, that David was delivered from his problems. He was delivered from the situation he was in. In the spiritual world, we say salvation is that God delivered me from the penalty I owed God. Now, how does God keep me today? He protects me by salvation. That I still deserve to go to hell, even after I've been saved. I'm a pastor of a church And if you knew what went through my mind from time to time, you wouldn't let me be pastor. You too. If we could have a tape recording of your mind, you wouldn't want anyone to hear what was played. All right? So just right before we started looking crazy, we're all sinners. We're all guilty. We all deserve punishment. Why aren't we getting it? Because of the salvation God has put around us. He has protected me with salvation. And even though I still deserve judgment, I don't receive judgment because of him protecting me by his salvation. Isn't that a wonderful God? And of course, in the future, God is going to protect Jerusalem without walls. He's going to protect him with his salvation. He is going to make sure that no one messes with Jerusalem in the future. For us, currently present tense, we are protected with God's salvation. We deserve the penalty of death. We deserve to die. We deserve hell. We deserve the lake of fire. And the only reason, the only reason why I'm not there right now and the only reason why I'm not going there is because I received the salvation he offered me. You understand it is a big deal, especially realizing I still present tense deserve hell. There is none righteous, no, not one. I'm so thankful that I can't lose that salvation. I'm so thankful that God doesn't say, you know what, I'm tired of you and moves that railing and pushes me off. He protects me with salvation. What a wonderful God. Well, what's the second way that God protects us that he's going to protect Jerusalem in the future? Notice with me, if you don't mind, verse number two. Open ye the gates that the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter in. The second way that God protects us is by truth. Is by truth. Now in the future he's going to protect Jerusalem with truth. Present tense right now he keeps me by truth. How does I get stay protected? By truth. Why is that a big deal? Because we've got a lot of information out there. And not a lot of truth. It is very, very easy for people to get deceived today. You could bring a whole flow chart of statistics and fool a lot of people. You can make statistics to say anything you want. And people can get deceived. You could say, well, I got a PhD or let me quote a guy from a PhD. And people say, well, if a doctor said it, they're smarter than me. So they must know what they say. And people can get deceived. How is it that I don't go crazy? How is it that I don't follow my own ideas and end up in Never Everland? How is it that I stay protected by truth? Do we have truth today? We do have truth. We have his word. And as long as I stay in the bounds of here, I am protected by truth. In fact, that is one of the pieces of the armor of God that God gives me. The breastplate of truth, of righteousness. Loins girt about with the things of truth. Forgive me, I'm just quoting things off the top of my head now. But we're protected by truth. And as long as we stay in here, we stay in bounds. When we go outside of the bounds of here, we get very dangerous ground. I mean, you take Eve. Satan comes to deceive her. 
And it says, yea, hath God said. The very first thing he did was question God's word. Then what she does is she does an overreaction. That yay, God told us not even to touch it. God said, don't eat of it, not to touch it. But now she's adding to God's word. Now she's on dangerous ground because she's outside the bounds of truth. Now that she's outside of the bounds of truth, now she's vulnerable. Well, God has held back his goodness from you. He doesn't want you to eat of the tree because he knows that if you eat that, you're going to become like a God. Well, I want that. She was vulnerable because she was now outside of truth. This is why we need to be in our Bible every day. That's the only way we could stay protected. Because you left to our own devices, we will figure out foolish things. If you could forgive the personal illustration. <clears throat> I had a good friend, friend of mine, family of mine. Just I loved them. Their kids were growing up. We were pretty sure this family was going to end up being a missionary. And they ended up um, being shipped to Turkey. And they were isolated part of Turkey in the military. And there was no local church there. So they said, we're going to do something. So we're going to have a house church. Okay, I can understand what they're doing. The problem was, is with that house church, they had no accountability. They had no buddy to keep them from saying, hey, you know what? You're going off too far at the edge. They got a hold of a truth, which was that the first century church did not have a New Testament. That's true. That the new, uh, the new Testament was in the process of being written. And so they did not have the, old or the New Testament. And by the way, that first century church thrived. That's a true historical fact. They drew a wrong conclusion though that said if the first century church didn't need the New Testament, we don't need a New Testament. And they rejected the New Testament. And it was a slow process, but because there was no one there to help guard them and protect them, they went outside of the bounds of the Bible. And they got in trouble. And what you know, one by one, those kids not only left Christianity, they left the Bible and left God and went to other areas and broke their kids, their parents' heart. Why? They didn't have truth protecting them anymore. And once they stepped outside of truth, they're now vulnerable. Does that make sense? This is why the greatest thing you could do on a daily basis is to be in the word of God for yourself. This is why it's so important to be a member of a local New Testament church, to have a pastor helping guard and say, you know what? You may not realize that, but that, that's going to hurt you there. That's not truth. Does that make sense? Because we're left to our own devices. We will get into trouble. Left to our own devices will think differently than what the Bible thinks. Someone said, if you give someone into a private room with a Bible and a commentary, they'll come out a heretic. You send them in with just a Bible, they're going to come out pretty good. But why? Because these influences will direct us away from truth. And when we're away from truth, we're now vulnerable. Truth protects us. It's interesting that the very first law of public education in America was founded when we were still as a colonies. The law was set uh, called the Old Deluder Satan Act. And this law stated in for public education in America that children need to be taught how to read their Bible as quickly as possible. Why? Because if people could read their Bible, then the atrocities that happened in Europe, like the Crusades and the Inquisition, could not happen in a land where people knew their Bible. That's why in the 17 and 1800s in America, children could read their Bible from cover to cover at age four. Today, we got people that graduate high school and they can't read their own diplomas. Why? Because Satan is under attack. If he can take away our reading, then we can't see what the truth says. And when we don't have truth, we're now vulnerable to attack. How does God protect us? He protects us, first of all, by salvation. How does he protect us? Second of all, he protects us by truth. But there's a third thing that God says that he protects us on. Isaiah chapter 26. And notice with me in verse number three and four. Thou will keep him in perfect peace, 
whose mind is stayed on thee. Why? Because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Verse number three is so important. If you haven't highlighted or marked this, please mark this. Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. Why? Because he trusteth in thee. What is the third protection that he gives us? He gives us the protection of peace as our minds are on him. When our minds are on him, he gives us peace. So many people don't have peace. And when they don't have peace, they're looking for something to give them peace, to give them satisfaction, to fill in that hole. You know, there's a lot of people, and may I say a lot of Christians, who don't have peace. How do you know? I know them. I know some of you. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. What am I going to do? How am I going to take care of this? I wonder what's going to happen. Hey, is this going to be taken care of? Oh, oh, where are they at? Where are they gonna... The Bible promises thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee. If you do not have perfect peace currently present tense at whatever time frame, it is because your mind is not on him. Remember, the who comes before the what. God is always previous. It all begins with God. It all ends with God. God is the goal. Is your mind on him? Is your mind on him? God promised to give us peace. Not just peace, but perfect peace. Whose mind is stayed on him. Let's see what the Bible has to say about this piece. Philippians chapter 4. I'm so thankful that God promised us peace. Because we live in a world that does not have peace. And we live in a time where it is the sky is falling. We live in a time where people are frantic. And they're frantic about the silliest things. Oh no, I, am I going to have enough time to do this? Am I going to be able to take care of this? And then, we, then because we don't have enough, we have to worry about other people's problems too. I wonder how they're doing. I wonder what they're doing. Peace is what God promised us. And when we're not having peace, we are vulnerable to attack. How is it that we can have this peace that God promised us? Well, first of all, it starts with salvation. Until you have salvation, you can't have peace. But notice with me Philippians chapter 4, and let's see what the Bible has to say about the peace that God promised us. How do we have this peace in my life, present tense, currently? Notice with me Philippians chapter 4, and start in verse number 4. Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Remember, we have to have our mind on him. So are you rejoicing in him? Are you looking at him? Are you praising him? Verse 5, let your moderation be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing. The word careful, we also say be anxious for nothing. Be worried for nothing. Be carried for, careful for nothing. Are you a worried person? The Bible says nothing we're supposed to be anxious about. Nothing we're to be worried about. Now pause. I understand all of us will get worried at some time. But we're not at peace when we're worried. We start rubbing our hands. We can't sleep. Our minds just keep going to that same thing over and over and over because we're anxious. We're worried. We're careful about it. The Bible says be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Remember, rejoice in the Lord. Be thankful for him. And it says, be careful for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding. It means this is a peace of God that doesn't make sense. How in the world can you have peace when this is falling apart? Well, I'm not worrying about it. Why aren't you worrying about it? Because I trust God. Amen. He will keep you in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee. You mean I don't have to worry about this? No. No. 
But I have to worry about it. If I don't worry over it, who's going to worry over it? <laughs> Ever met someone like that? You felt like you're, you have to worry over it because no one else is worrying over it? It's my baby. I to... God will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee. Be... And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Verse number eight. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true. Now notice this. It's going to tell us what we're supposed to think on. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true. If you would just take that one point, we'd be better off. You say, what do I mean? Well, listen, ladies, I'll pick on you. She doesn't like me. How do you know she doesn't like you? Well, I just know. Do you? What evidence do you have? Or do you just feel she doesn't like you? Maybe she's having a bad day. Maybe she's thinking about something. But I just know she doesn't like me. Well, no wonder you're outside of bounds. You don't have any truth on that. You may think it's true, but do you have any proof? Do you have any evidence? Do you know it's true? A lot of our worries are on things that haven't happened yet. Have you ever noticed that? Yes. We're worried about things that haven't happened. We're borrowing from the problems of tomorrow. Amen. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, there's a lot of falsehoods out there. Let's just concentrate on things that are true and honest, meaning that you have proof and evidence for it. Well, it's going to further qualify whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just. This idea of just carries the idea that things are fairly distributed, that things that people are given what is due to them. All right. It's not talking about are we equal on the backside? It's talking about because they worked for it, did they get what they deserved? Whatsoever things are just. There's a lot of inequality out there and a lot of it you can't do anything about. Amen. So why put your worry about it? There's a lot of anxious people worrying about the inequality of other people. And they're not at perfect peace. They're the sky is falling. Amen. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true. Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure. There's a lot of filthy, corrupted stuff out there. If we got rid of all the bad news, we wouldn't have anything to worry about. Amen. Whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely. Again, bad news travels fast. Good news doesn't travel at all. <laughs> Can you think of whatsoever thing is lovely? It says whatsoever things are of good report. Once again, the good news. There's a lot of good things to think about. No wonder we're so frantic in our minds because we just concentrate on the bad news. Amen. There's a lot of things out there, but you don't understand how imperfect pastor is. No, you don't. Uh, let me tell you how bad I am. It's a lot worse than what you think. Same with you. You know, if you concentrate on all the bad stuff, you're going to find it. There's a lot of bad stuff out there. But can you concentrate on what is good? What is good news? What is something good you heard about that person? What is something good you heard about this incident? If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on those things. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do and the God of peace shall be with you. So earlier it said the peace of God. Now it says the God of peace. It all begins with God. It all ends with God. How does God protect us? He protects us through salvation. How does God protect us? He protects us through truth. How does he protect us? He protects us through peace. And we can have all three of those. And when we have all three of those, we're in a place of God's protection. And it promises us that perfect peace God gives to those. His mind is stayed on thee. Why? Because he trusteth in him. 
can we trust in God? Can we trust God to take care of the inequalities better than what me trying to fix it? Can we trust God with all the bad news? Yeah, better than I could try to fix it. I can trust God. And I don't have to go around as a Debbie Downer. I don't have to depress everybody because I'm just the bearer of bad news of everything. We all know people who have that dark cloud over, their, over them and then when they move, that dark cloud follows them. And we try to run away from them because we don't want them to get caught in that storm. Are you a person that's protected by peace? If not, let me tell you some good news. You can have that peace in your life. You can have the peace that God promised you. And when you have that peace, you are protected. You're not vulnerable to attack. You are protected. Aren't you glad that God protects us in these ways? And that we could have a life worth living no matter what's going on. Then, of course, he's going to protect Jerusalem. He speaks about in one, uh, Psalm 122, verse number 6. We're not turning there. But it gives us the commandment to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's what we're supposed to be doing now is praying for the peace of Jerusalem. And as we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, that God also promises us peace. Are we praying? So, dear friend, do you have salvation? Are you looking in the truth? And do you have the peace that God promised you? If you have all three of those, God is protecting you and you are not vulnerable to all the attacks that's going around us now. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.